And now, for the first time in color, the 38th Academy Award. And welcome back to The Snub Club. You know, with any truly great motion picture, the only thing that dates it really are the fashions of the time. The podcast with the movies that have the most Oscar noms and no wins whatsoever. This is the night devoted to one man, Oscar. Hello, and welcome back to The Snub Club, the movie or the podcast. We talk about the movies that have the most Oscar noms and no wins whatsoever. My name is Danny Vincent, and I'm full of agony when I'm just out of reach. Chris Pines on D and D. I guess I could have run out the scene; it would have made more sense. But too bad. That is that is too bad. Um, <laughs> hallelujah! I'm Sarah. I have been promoted from my uh, my previous uh, pontifex of the greater Tennessee area. I'm now the Pope, Caleb Bunn. All right. Let's, the white smoke has gone up. Let's get into the 38th Academy Award. It's going to be a long one. All right. The movie has 10 nominations. It's called The Sound of Music. It wins five. It wins Best Picture, Best Director for Robert Wise, Best Adapted Score, Best Sound, and Best Film Editing. It's not a film with 10 nominations and five wins. It's called Dr. Zivago. I feel like this is one of those rare years where like two like classics, like movies that people still talk about came out and like actually pitted against each other. And they both won a lot. So that's kind of interesting. You know, usually we talk about the Oscars are wrong. I feel like these are the movies everyone talks about from this year. Anyway, Dr. Zivago wins Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Original Score, Best Art Direction Color, Cinematography Color, and Costume Design Color. Then there's a movie called Ship of Fools. It has eight nominations. It wins two. It wins art direction, black and white, and cinematography, black and white. Then, all right, then there are six films with five nominations. First, Darling wins three. It wins Best Actress for Julie Christie, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Costume Design, black and white. Then there are three other movies with these five nominations that each win one. Cat Baloo wins Best Actor for Lee Marvin, A Patch of Blue, wins Best Supporting Actress for Shelley Winters, and The Great Race wins Best Sound Effects, which leaves us with two movies with five Oscar nominations and no wins. We'll cover the first one this week, which is titled The Agony and the Ecstasy. Sarah, what was The Agony and the Ecstasy nominated for? Um, it was nominated for Best Art Direction Color for John DeCure, uh, Jack Martin Smith, and Dario Simone. They lost to John Box, Terrence Marsh, and Dario Simone for Dr. Zhivago. Uh, DeCure was nominated seven more times. <laughs> the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> um, was nominated seven more times and won three. Smith was nominated five more times and won three. Zimone was also nominated for The Taming of the Shrew in 1968 and won two, including Dr. Zhivago. Uh, Best Cinematography Color for Leon Chamroy, who lost to Freddie Young for Dr. Zhivago. Uh, He was nominated 13 more times and won four. Best Costume Design Color for for Vittorio Nino uh, Novarese, who lost to Phyllis Dalton for Dr. Zhivago. Uh, He was nominated two more times and won two. Best Original Score for Alex North, who lost to Marie Charest 
for Dr. Zhivago. Uh, he was nominated 14 more times and won one honorary in recognition of his brilliant artistry and the creation of memorable music for a host of distinguished motion pictures. He's probably most famous for writing Unchained Melody. Um, and finally, best sound for James Cochran, who lost to James Cochran and Fred Hines for The Sound of Music. Uh, Cochran was nominated two more times and won for The Sound of Music. Nice. Now, Caleb, as this is a two-parter, I won't be getting in the ceremony this week, so why don't you tell us some store context on the Agony and Ecstasy. I can't say this. Crazy. All right, anyway. The Agony and the Ecstasy, a movie about Michelangelo painting the Sistine Chapel ceiling with a contentious relationship with the Pope. Um... Lots that I could dig into here, like on a lot of these based on true story movies. I'm going to try to keep it real simple and just lean into Pope Julius II, because that's what Danny wants to hear yeah. about. I mean, the, all, all, we don't need to know about the artist. This movie has two Ninja Turtles in it. That's all we need to know. Exactly. Um, terrible Ninja Turtle effects for this movie. Worse by far. It wasn't how many um, effects. So. That's true. <laughs> so... Uh, Pope Julius II, also known as the Warrior Pope, uh, he was uh, he began his papacy Sorry. in uh, fifteen oh three. Actually, what he's known for? Because I'm laughing yes. because I'm imagining the... like, uh, what are you going to see tonight? Uh, I'm debating between the Pope's Exodus or the Warrior Pope. Sounds like a Netflix show. <laughs> exactly. Well, it sounds like the Warrior, like the Warrior ideas. Pope, the Women King, the Warrior Nun, the Warrior Pope. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd see it. Sorry, go on. Um, well, yeah, so, you know, he takes power in 1503 after his, uh, his predecessor, Pius III dies like within a year of, uh, being, uh, being Pope and like his name would imply, he likes to get down dirty. He leads battles, uh, and kind of tries to expand and centralize the, uh, the power of the papacy, uh, and the Catholic church because at this time, there was a lot of um, a lot of different uh, countries that are trying to trying to have influence over the uh, over the papacy. There was the Western Schism that uh, started in 1378 and ended in 1417, so just a little bit before Pope Julius was born. This would color the uh, reign of many popes moving forward, and the Western Schism basically was a time. When a bunch of the cardinals disagreed over who was the pope because they thought that the uh, person who was officially uh, crowned pope was uh, wasn't legitimate, there was some um, there was some shenanigans there, and so a lot of different there ended up being three or four different popes, uh, and eventually it all got sorted out. However, there was a lot of corruption uh, in the Catholic Church. Surprise, surprise, and there was a lot of distrust. So when Pope Julius takes over. There is a lot of concern that the French are going to basically try the same thing, where all the French cardinals are going to deny his legitimacy and have uh, or install another pope. Um, at the same time, the Reformation, the uh, Protestant Reformation, is going on. So there's an even wider cultural move against not only the pope but the Catholic Church in general. Um, so this is kind of why Pope Julius II was such a um, militaristic pope and something that we would probably think is kind of weird today like it would be it'd be a little weird for the current pope 
to uh to like raise an army. But the Pope has always been a political position, and uh, seen, especially back. Parka? In the Pope's no, Parka? I haven't. Maybe maybe I should be uh maybe I should be a little worried. <laughs> Wait, wait, wait. But, um, hold on. I, I do, I do love that little puffer jacket. <laughs> I should be clear to Caleb. Um, the Pope's parka is like the first thing that like the big AI boom going on right now. Really, I feel like fooled people on because someone kept someone's like, "Wow, look at the Pope's new jacket!" And everyone kind of, even me, I was like, "Damn, I didn't know he was." It was literally like just that. the caption. Just the caption was like, "No way," and that was it. <laughs> so, that, so to me, I was sold on it. You know, it wasn't. Yeah, Sarah just sent it to oh, the text is- panel. Um, so Caleb is getting very his live funny. reaction to the Pope Parker right now. I I would love it. I didn't know the Michelin Man was Catholic, yeah. but you know, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, that's that's AI for you. Anyway, go on. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, just to say, it seems weird nowadays, but uh, you know, the Pope has always been a political position, and especially back in this, back in you know the 1500s when everything was tied to divine right to rule. Who had more, you know, legitimacy in big quotation marks to raise an army and go to war than the person who sat on the holy see? So that that's kind of a little bit of background on Pope Julius the the second. But what about what about the the movie we watched today? Let's let's right. let me stop talking for a bit. <laughs> the agony and the ecstasy. What do we think of it? <sighs> Should I go first? Because Caleb just talked a lot. I have a galaxy brain take on it, so maybe I don't want to be like, maybe I shouldn't go first, but I do have a pretty galaxy brain take. On it. Okay, then why don't you go? Okay, all right. So there's this new trend that people I keep seeing getting really mad about on the, the film Twitters, but it's even if you're not mad about it, it is a trend in cinema right now. That is, you know, there's a movie that just came out called Blackberry, there's a movie that just came out, um, I forget it, there's another one, but then there's Air, I, there's like three of them, there's three of them, and I wanted there's to end on Tetris? Air. Tetris. Tetris, yes. There's Tetris and there's Air. And to me, this felt like the Air of the 60s. Um, It's about the relationship between art and capitalism. Um, Sure, the company is the Catholic Church, but I do think this movie is way more interesting when it's tackling it as, like, artists need money to to perceive their dreams. What is it worth selling out your soul for the money? Stuff like that. Um, and to me, that reminds me of an air. I know whenever you saw air, but in air, there's this big scene where like the shoe designer, like, it's like, I've been working on this for years and it, I'll be honest, the shoe, like the air Jordan shoe is a really beautiful shoe. It's just the, like, it's all in service of the Nike executives. Right. And so what I'm saying is in this movie, Rex Harrison is Ben Affleck's character in air. He is the father of the, the Nepo baby who runs Leica. He is. The Pope and Catholic Church is Nike. But anyway, all <laughs> that might be sound like a bit, but I do think this is a precursor to that type of movie in its own way. But I also think this is a precursor to biopics, obviously, and specifically how we've got, our, you know, hint, hint, nudge, nudge. I'm pretty sure our next movie might be somewhat of a biopic that covers an entire life. I Whereas, guess. Well, you know, depends, it covers an entire life. Nowadays, you know, we push for more where it's like it's about one specific thing that happened in Michelangelo's life. David already happened. We don't need to cover that. And I think the way it goes about it is interesting. I don't think I think it's okay. <laughs> I think I I'm already talking at big game. I think it's a lot more interesting what it's trying to do than what it actually is. Uh I'm also pretty grateful about the runtime because 
I'm sure we'll talk about the first 10 minutes of this movie, but once you remove those first 10 minutes, this is a solid two hour even movie, which is nice considering how I feel like movies of this production design. Well, look, Sarah, this could have been three hours long. I'm so used to a movie like this. Completely. I loved the first 10 minutes. I hated the rest of the movie. <laughs> oh, I like the first 10 minutes too. I'm not saying the first 10 minutes. I'm just saying you should remove that. The narrative of the film is only two hours, which I appreciate yes. in and of itself because I'm so used to this stuff being free. Two hours, 50 minutes. You know, this, this is an even two hours about those first 10 minutes. So I like that about it too. For context for the listener, the first 10 minutes is a uh, is like a Nat Geo documentary <laughs> on the history the of... The first 10 minutes are great. <laughs> this movie shot on 70, and those first 10 minutes must have been mind-blowing. People like seeing this art, 70 millimeter. It, uh, yeah, it's just... It's like a Nat Geo documentary on the work of Michelangelo leading up to the Sistine Chapel with some beautiful photography of the sculptures. Uh, but man, like... and. Maybe this is ironic coming from the guy who uh, who does historical context each episode, but don't need it in the movie. Could easily cut it. But okay, but it is. I do think it is there because this was you know beginning of seventy millimeter after Lawrence of Arabia a couple of years prior, um, and you know it's like what can we do to wow our audience because this movie really is mostly interiors and a couple of war scenes that feel out of place. Um, okay, why don't we just have Solomon? They get to see this gorgeous photography of. Michelangelo's art. So I get it in that regard. Yeah, and it makes sense in the sense that it's like this was pre-internet. So get like actually look at being able to look up Michelangelo's art would be a little bit harder. Sure, everyone probably had seen David, but you know, like some of his more uh his earlier works and stuff, you'd have to go to the library and dig it up. I was going you know. I was going to make a joke at some point during this, so maybe I might as well make it now about like you know, this movie could be banned in schools now because of the nudity of the statues, right? That is a Simpsons episode. That is also something that's happening, I believe, in Florida right now. So, <laughs> just saying it is. Well, no, the statues aren't gay, Danny, so it's fine. No, um, Caleb, do you think I'm joking? This is legit. So principal like, is on administrative I'm, leave because... Because I live in Tennessee. I, I am I live in Tennessee. I am sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, like Mouse got banned because it has nudity. Um that's true. The mouse, the mouse it's nothing. Oh, oh. Got sorry, got banned the for the nudity? <laughs> the mouse got banned because it was gay. <laughs> or maybe you're talking about something no, else. I don't know. No, no, the book Mouse got banned because oh, it showed Oh, I like you with the mouse like Disney. Like how we refer no, to no, Disney no. as the mouse. <laughs> <laughs> no, Tennessee hasn't picked that fight yet. Make anyway, Disney we're, great we're again. Way off topic. <laughs> okay. This movie is fine. There's some really good scenes. There are some scenes that it, it never has scenes that are like actively bad. It's just that there could have been a lot of trimming of the fat on this movie, and some ideas definitely get lost. Sarah, you hated it. I did. I I agree. I don't think anything that I watched was horrible. I just think that it was also mediocre. <laughs> that it was just difficult for me. And I love Rex Harrison. I like Charlton Heston. I just, I thought that this was so boring. I just, like, nothing about this was interesting to me. And I love art. I love classical art. I, it's not even like a, it's not even like a faith thing. Because I actually thought that him, like, talking about his faith was kind of cool. I just... I just thought it was so boring. <laughs> yeah, I think the, the role Faith plays in the movie is kind of interesting, especially, okay, full disclosure also on me. 
it took me about three and a half hours to get through this because I watched the first like 30 minutes and I was doing that thing I did, I think a couple movies ago where I was just starting to fall asleep during it. And it wasn't the movie's fault. I've just been wiped out from work. So I was like, all right, I'm falling asleep right now. I'll pause the movie. My phone is set for 30 minutes from now. Start it up again in 30 minutes. I immediately fell asleep where I was watching the movie. It's like, I'm comfortable. Um, turned it back on, watched another 30 minutes. I was like, I cannot pay attention to this. I'm still groggy. So then I went to shower for like 40 minutes. And then that finally allowed me to be awake for like the last 45 minutes. I know my math doesn't play out, but it was like 45 minutes were left in the movie when I finally was able to like really sit down and really pay attention to it. Which is why when I, I'll be like, oh yeah, I thought the end of this was really great. I don't know if we can really trust that opinion from me because of how I watched it, but I also did very specifically think the stuff at the end about faith. And again, as I said, I actually do think the stuff about like commissioning artists um, and wanting to be an artist is very interesting, especially in movies of this era where I don't think they are that interested in art. I think most of the other epics of this era are interested in like, you know, the warriors or like Lawrence of Arabia, who's like, yeah, he's a little sensitive, but he wants to, you know, be a warrior type of guy. You know, someone who's listening to this is like, that's not what Lawrence of Arabia is about, Danny. But I'm trying to keep it simple about going to what Lawrence of Arabia is. Yeah, Lawrence. <laughs> Lawrence of Arabia is a lot more than that. I, just, it's, it's a big movie, you know. Not about being. Yeah, nervous. I mean, I think, I think the connection. If I can make a connection between the two to completely pivot off of it. Um, Lawrence of Arabia, of course, T. Lawrence was gay. And so, you know, there's a lot of queer coding in the movie. Um, I felt like Charlton Heston was doing a lot of, I don't want to say effeminate, but definitely like very soft expressions with his body language in this in a way that like, I really, I really enjoyed the way he kind of, uh, he kind of literally held himself in a lot of these scenes as kind of this way of him trying to retreat inwards um, that I think is really cool and, and not similar to other uh, Heston movies I've seen. I will well, say this. It's funny oh. you say that. If I if I could say it, unless you want to say it, unless oh, we're talking about, about two different what things. I, what I I'm talking about. You? No, I was just gonna quickly say what I texted you. What did you text me? Oh, so when the movie ended, uh, I've only seen one Charlton Heston movie, and it's Ten Commandments, which I haven't seen in like 15 years. You've seen and, Hercules. He's on Hercules. Oh, okay. You're right. You're right. But I don't see him in. I hear him. You're right. You're right. But anyway, I've seen Ten Commandments. Um, and I don't think I've seen Rex Harrison in anything else. So this entire movie I'm watching, I'm like, damn, I, I, I don't I, I can't remember exactly when Ten Commandments is. But Charlton Heston got old. And then when the credits roll, I'm like, wait, I thought it was, I thought Rex Harrison was Michelangelo. Because I have no context for who Rex Harrison is. And Charlton, and Charlton Heston. And I'm like, oh, all right. I, I have not been thinking about these actors at all in this movie, I guess. <laughs> I was just surprised they made the professor from uh, My Fair Lady that he made it all the way up to being Pope. That's some good. Uh, the only thing I know about Rex Harrison is he's the original Doctor Doolittle. That is true. He's been in two musicals and he does not sing in them. Um, he's pretty famous for that. Um, no, what I was going to say is it's funny that you say that Charleston Heston was acting effeminate because. So scholars are mixed on if Michelangelo was in fact gay. I think people, 
I think it's accepted that he probably was, but uh, there was a documentary called The Celluloid Closet that came out about, you know, queerness in Hollywood. And they, and Charlton Heston refused to participate because Michelangelo was not gay and he knew that he was not gay. <laughs> well, Charlton Heston in general is, wasn't he the NRA spokesman and stuff like that? He's, yeah, yeah. He, <laughs> he goes, uh... which is why it surprised me both because, you know, I'm used to seeing him in like Ben Hur and stuff where he's like, you know, like the big, strong action guy. But also because, you know, the the back part of his career was being, you know, pretty right leaning. Um, I do see it says that whether he, he was... wanted to admit it or not, he played the role a certain way. <laughs> I do see that Wiki has an, Wikipedia has an entire section on his um page where it says literally political activism from liberalism to conservatism because he apparently you know was with um a march on like civil he was very much working for the civil rights act and stuff like that oh i didn't Ooh, they should make a movie about how he apparently um was the president of sag from 1965 to 1971 apparently argued with ed asner a lot I don't know what the story is there, but the idea of Charlton had to send Ed Asner arguing a lot. It's very amusing to me. Um, but anyway, it does say he started liberal, but then when Reagan started, he became a Reagan person. He is one of the celebrities who's in um, the documentary King, a film's record, uh, which is a great documentary. But I, he always stuck out in that, too, because it would cut from like Harry Belafonte saying something to James Earl Jones saying something to Charlton Heston saying something. Yeah. Literally there's a picture here at the March on Washington where it's Heston with Sidney Poitier and Harry Belafonte. It's literally a picture on his wiki. I don't know. This is really interesting to me, uh, but I don't really want to read it all right now, especially because I doubt I really like Charlton Heston. You know, just because someone starts out as a good person doesn't mean they stay with you. Because, you know, people are definitely binary and always remain as one thing their whole lives. He said I was racist that a white actor couldn't play a Eurasian role in Miss Saigon. Great. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> I mean, the logic so, tracks. <laughs> I got to check Rex Harrison's political affiliation before we continue. He's a mask I... of his face was used by the CIA. <laughs> okay, so... That actually... But okay, <laughs> we don't need to talk about it. <laughs> the movie. The movie follows... Michelangelo and his contentious relationship with Pope Julius about painting the Sistine Chapel. And I, I'd say the major beats in it are, you know, he starts painting, then he gets angry one night. And so he like wrecks what he's supposed to be painting and then runs off. And then the intermission it, uh, happens right after he like looks out onto God's creation. Oh, is there an intermission like, on the version you watched? Mine didn't. Yeah. Oh, yes. oh. Was it on YouTube and I rented it for no reason? Okay. No. no. <laughs> okay, well, my version just cut. I didn't realize it was in there. Although that did feel like the intermission spot. So Well, the intermission was just a black screen. It wasn't, there wasn't anything on the screen. Oh, well. That could just be a fade to black. Well, no, there's an intermission title card. Oh, okay. Yes. Well, there wasn't, but... on, there wasn't on mine. Okay. So it just, it just faded to black into the next scene on mine. Okay. That's so weird. The movie's really short. Anyway, go on. Um, but you know, he's stunned by God's creation. And so he decides to go back and instead of painting what 
Julius set out for him to paint. He's going to paint, you know, all the scenes from Genesis that are on the Sistine Chapel. Um, this is one of those movies where, like, the movie doesn't actually start till after their intermission. I realize. Not I know. Yet. Like, <laughs> this is the movie. Like, it's actually all right. This is what you came for. <laughs> Here's the plot. <laughs> There's a lot of manufactured drama in this first part. That, like I said, when when I said that there's a lot of trim to be, or fat to be trimmed here, a lot of that is in this first half because you could cut back on a lot of this stuff because it's not like their relationship is less contentious in the second half. It just keeps escalating. So you can you don't have to start out with him like literally running away from the Pope. You can you can just feed into the the rest of the drama in the second act. It's like how, in actuality, there wasn't that much drama between selling Michael Jordan on the shoe. I think I think there's a connection there. I mean, I wouldn't. <laughs> I, w- I haven't seen the movie, but I wouldn't think there would be. I mean, he's made millions and millions of dollars on them. <laughs> wait, wait, wait! Can I spoil the end of Air? It's really funny. I mean, I aren't we living the end of Air? <laughs> wait, 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 wait! So the end of Air is like you know they go like. This guy got promoted in the company. Well, no, the first one though is about Michael Jordan. It's like Michael Jordan went on to make back their investment in him after his first three months of play, something like that. And then it goes to the other player, like the other people in the movie, and then ends with Michael Jordan became the greatest basketball player of all time. That's the last card. And I'm like, yep, you got me. You're right. It is true. And there is no other basketball player that comes close. Anyway. <laughs> Is Michael Angel? That's sort of into the top. Like is he Angel, the goat? The is he the greatest of all time? <laughs> Which would be really Raphael funny at the end of this disagree. movie, where it's actually wait, wait. To jump, can we jump to the end very quickly? Where I keep making the joke about air, but this also reminds me of the post. Because remember how the post ends with like Nixon going like, "Oh, if these posts mess with me again, I'm gonna be mad," and then it cuts to Watergate. That's what the ending of this feels like, where it's like, hmm. Should I do another art? <laughs> like, it's him looking at where he makes some, um, I think it's uh, The Last Judgment. <laughs> it's like, great, cool. I'm glad we set up the sequel. The <laughs> sequel, okay. That reminds me, this is so off topic, but Scott told me that The Post was a prequel to All the President's Men. <laughs> like, he knows that they came out. Like, he, he just thinks that they're so similar. Well, it's meant to be a prequel. I remember the joke at the time of the post was like, this is literally like Rogue One for all the president's men. Like, it it leads directly into it for no reason. (laughs) Because at least Rogue One has a reason for it. The post ending of like, oh, something bad's going to happen with Nixon. (laughs) I wonder what. You can't you can't let people leave the theater and think Nixon was a good guy, Danny. <laughs> Nixon's the bad guy. Don't the tell us it in the, the post. post. He's trying to shut up the post. I don't remember anything in the post. I saw it once in theaters during that Oscar season, and I've not seen it since. It's probably good at Spielberg, but also I do remember the ending being dumb. Don't worry, it's not a stump club movie. It only had two nominations. Darn. <laughs> um, I do like throughout this movie, uh, like because. Second act, he starts painting the thing. He gets into some fights with the Pope. He finishes painting the thing. He gets sick at one he point. Falls off the Pope almost times. dies in battle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, he falls off. 
lives now. I wish you'd been like, the agony, the agony. I will say, I do feel like in the same vein as Charlton Heston saying that he's not gay. I feel like they purposely added a love story so that there would not be too much tension. I think the love story is so Talk unnecessary and so stupid. The worst part of the movie. But the love story gives you, I'm sure this is what made you remember it. The love story gets you the title drop of the movie. That is true. Isn't that what love is? The agony and the ecstasy. Okay. Christopher (laughs) Nolan. I, yeah, I think the problem there is that every time for me, I mean, the problem there is that it's, it's an unnecessarily unnecessary plot in a movie that could be cut down a little bit. But beyond that, every time I see one of these artists, usually it's a musician, but an artist movie that tries to make the case that the artist can't doesn't have time for love or whatever because they're so in love with their art. I'm just like, if you made this guy instead of an artist, like a CEO, or like, you know, like a, a pope, any type of corporate job, they would we would just all agree that they're an asshole who doesn't know how to have a work life balance. Like, I I can't sympathize with that aspect of and. I mean, sometimes I can, right? Like, I think it was handled well in The Fablemans. But that's because The Fablemans is being a lot more critical of it than it is here. Here it is very romanticized. Well, because Michael, Michelangelo... I keep saying my, I was going to say Michael Thornton. Michelangelo became the greatest artist of all time. It's all tied together. <laughs> um, so, at one point, he quits... Well, he quits a couple times. Yeah. But I remember the time specifically where he quits and he gets hit by the cane. And then in every scene following it, he mentions that he got hit by a cane. I mean, <laughs> I would too. If the Pope hit me, I would be like, hey, remember that time the Pope hit me? That's true. It's a little, it's a mark of pride in a way that like humanity hit the Pope so madly hit you. But. Yeah, which is basically their relationship is they go back and forth of either he's quitting and the Pope's like negging him into keeping going or the Pope's firing him and he has to find a way to like boost up the Pope's ego enough that he doesn't die on the battlefield and he lets him paint. Like there's even a point where the Pope's like, we're going to make a new Cardinal just so we can uh finance this that's, more that's because it's been going like, on for so long it's really interesting to me that where it's like this movie is like even though it's about like the catholic church it is directly like you need money to make art you need to sell out your um if you are like a religious facility you might need to sell out your ideas in order to get the money you need to do it i think it's really interesting how this movie is definitely about capitalism and its effect on art and religion but then it never really examines it it's just there but the fact that it's there is interesting enough for me especially for what else this movie is well yeah and it's because Raphael has his scene maybe the only scene where he's actually doing anything in the movie where he kind of convinces Michelangelo to like you know fight for his ability to keep painting and there's a part in it where he's it feels very much like he's saying these are the forces at work and we are above those like we this is what we need to do and we are going to do them no matter what because we have no other option because we are like we are bound to create and i think that's like i i like that scene i think there's a lot of cool ideas running throughout there and then it's picked up 
with in the last 30 minutes with the Pope and comparing Michelangelo's work to the Pope's work. Um, I like all that stuff. All right, so here's my pitch. You remake this movie, but actually use the Ninja Turtles, right? And then you have that scene there, and the scene is like more about like, had this really great story idea, but unfortunately the studio would only greenlight it if I could use Ninja Turtles. <laughs> That's how that scene is utilized. So is the Pope Splinter or Shredder? The Pope is, um, the Pope is the, the WB CEO <laughs> right now. <laughs> I will say that. Okay, okay. Sorry. What's WB? In this recent... Who's Ninja Turtles? That's it's Nickelodeon, Paramount, right? It's Paramount. But the Paramount okay. CEO, it's like, people only know that there's a WC CEO who's terrible or like whichever Bob's in charge of Disney. And everyone would know the Ninja Turtles isn't Bob. You know, isn't Disney. It isn't Bob. Um, there's a moment in a recent episode of Barry where some character deadly seriously says, take me to the head of Warner Brothers. And it's not meant to be a joke. But considering everything that's happened since it was filmed before the Brothers, it's just insane. It was insanely funny to me. But hey. I could see I could see a Ninja Turtles character named David Zaslav. <laughs> well, uh, Raphael and Michelangelo are the two best turtles. So, mm, you doing my boy else. Donnie dirty? I yes. can't remember the fourth oh, one. Man. Because he sucks. It's Leonardo. Ninja Turtles. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's mentioned this movie a couple times. Though. And then there's the fifth guy. one, Venus <laughs> DeMilo. That Da Vinci guy. No one's going to care about him. I wanted to say there's one scene I really like. And I think Caleb and Sarah, you might have both alluded to it, but I do think it's worth talking. It's the scene where they like admire creation of Adam. And the Pope's like, why did you make him so... Um, I forget what the exact word he uses. Um, but like so calm it's like well i wanted to make god i mean i want to make adam as god created him unmarred by sin yet and just innocent and in thankful for his creation and it's like i think one of them makes it i think it's the pope who makes a comment it's like some days i'm not like i'm not grateful i think someone one of them makes a comment like that and it's like it's just a really well done scene and one of those things that really actually captures like what because i do think this movie again this movie is like a three out of five it's it's fine it's not bad it's not good but it, I, I don't hate that I watch it. But that scene where it's like, it's like this is like one of the, I think this is the first time, like chronologically wise, like 1965. This is like the first time I think I've seen a movie like this really capture like what it is to like look at a piece of art and talk about it. You know, it's really just like the Pope and the artist talking about it. I, I think it's a really well done scene. I think it's a very beautiful scene. It's the scene that we were was very enraptured by everything going on. It's like what they're saying is fascinating. Yeah, and. You also have the scene where all the cardinals are yelling at Michelangelo about the nudity. Which is that's what I was saying. That reminded me that's what I was thinking of before, I think. Yeah. Um and I I really appreciate that scene too, because they it goes beyond just like the idea of censorship and it gets into like, you're just stealing from the Greeks. No, you're perverting what the Greeks did. No, I'm transcending what the Greeks did. There are a lot of good scenes in this movie. And I, the more we talk about it, the more those stick out in my mind and the more I forget about, oh, he goes to a tavern and the wine is sour. Oh, he, he forgets to go to a party with his not girlfriend. Oh, he runs off to cut a brick for four or five months. That's the agony. I don't know. <laughs> what, is there anything else you want to guys want to talk? I don't know. I, I'm so, I, like, this is a movie that I like, but I don't know if there's a lot for me to talk about with it. 
You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, a Wikipedia summary is extremely short, which is always a bad sign well, for a movie. It's also one of those things where I did notice the Wikipedia summary does kind of just skip over the entire first half of the movie, which is valid, you know? I do like the point they keep making where it's like, I have 40 statues planned for your tomb. It's like, okay, well, it's going to take you 160. And like, everyone knows it's going it's to take you 160 years to finish that, buddy. Please don't. Well, he, <laughs> like, did, he did finish it, but it took him like 30 years after he died. Did he do all 40, though? And I don't know. That's what I was trying to he look at. At least did Moses. Because they show Moses fewer at the than, beginning. And- fewer than one third of the figures originally planned. So he did not finish. But 160 divided by three is 53 years. So he did come in under time. True. I like how the cinematography reflects the scale of the of the chapel, uh, or I guess not of the chapel, just of what he's doing, like the the process of painting the fresco. Because like it starts off with like panning up, but then it has a lot of great low angle shots of like the Pope will be down and he'll be yelling at Michelangelo up top, and it'll go up to it'll show Michelangelo and he's backlit um, against like his beautiful frescoes and all this stuff, and then when it just takes a moment when it's finally done and it does like the kind of the slow pan up um, or tilt up and then pan over the entire uh, Sistine Chapel, which was recreated for the movie. Um, I was going to say, which is probably why the movie didn't actually make any money was because they spent millions of dollars recreating the Sistine Chapel. I think this is the type of movie the entire time I was watching, I was like, all right, I know what three options there are for me to add award for. And then I see all three were actual nominations. But I think, you know, there's, I think there's no arguing against the staying nominated for art direction, cinematography and costumes, like nomination. It's like, no, like no way was this not top five of that year. Cause all of them are very intricate. Maybe the costumes are a little like Michelangelo wears the same thing, the entire movie at points. But beyond that, I think it's pretty unimpeachable. All three of them are technically, qualities there you know it's just a very pretty to look at movie but is it pretty enough to give over the agony and the ecstasy this song this movie could have used an original song yeah written by steven sondheim yes (laughs) could have gone ecstasy (laughs) when did uh when did when did sondheim ride into the woods way after this (laughs) (laughs) I actually, well, I, I do forget that West Side Story. I always forget West Side Story's song because it's not, you know, his music. Well, yeah, and that's the weird thing is like I always think of him as like '80s, but he also did West Side Story. Well, also, a funny thing happened on the way to the forum in '60s too. He wrote us. Oh, he wrote yeah. it in '86. I try not to remember that. One. Well, you could say that this movie inspired him to write that song. It wouldn't it's be true. true, but you could say it. Come on. Sondheim's first There's thing no was in um, Saturday Night, which is um, 1955. But it, it closed because the producer died. R.I.P. Producer. Hmm. We'll dedicate this episode to him. <laughs> I do say, I always think it's fun to look at like Sondheim's works. Because it's always like... Ah, Sondheim, what a brilliant man. Then you see his works, you're like, oh, wait, he has like five canonical classics, and it's stuff like anyone can whistle. But you're like, what? What is this? (laughs) 
Well, I mean, he just hit. He had a really good period in the eighties, right? Yeah, Where he had like Sweeney Todd, Sweeney Todd into the woods. It's okay. In over order, it's so. Sweeney Todd, Merrily We Were Along, which is a famous bomb, but a famously critically acclaimed bomb, you know, like where people are like, the music is great, the production's bad. Um, then Sunday in the Park with George, Into the Woods, all back to back to back. Um, and then if you move it before it, it's also a little before it, it's Company, Follies, and a little night music all back to back. There's just like a two musical break in there between them of stuff I haven't heard of. Well, I've heard of Pacific and, Overtures, but I don't really know it. I don't know what the frog is. And he has. He has a posthumous musical coming out too, right? We'll see. Why are we talking about Sondheim? I'm sorry, I guess. Maybe we're talking about greatest of all time. Wait, yeah, (laughs) Stephen Sondheim became the greatest (laughs) musical theater man of all time. I have to ask before we move on from Sondheim: Have you heard of the Frogs? It seems like something that'd be your thing, Caleb. I know that there's an old play, like a a Greek play called The Frogs. It's based off it. He has a musical about the Frogs. Oh, cool! But I need to look this up then. Sparing about the living quality, the quality of living dramatists, travels to Hades to bring back George Bernard Shaw from the dead. William Shakespeare then competes with Shaw for the title of the greatest playwright of all time, which he wins. Dionysus brings Shakespeare back to the world of living and hope that art can save civilization. This sounds like it's probably bad. <laughs> if it's got this plot and no one's heard of it. Probably, but... How else are you gonna adapt an Aristophanes play in the in the modern? There's day? a recording of Nathan Lane playing the lead. So. <sighs> you might just have to check this out. Wikipedia does not have a reception tab, so I have no idea what's going on. All right, I'm watching part of it, and this is this is wild. Yeah, Nathan Lane right. wrote the script too. Who wrote the script? I don't anyway. really like. I don't really like Sondheim. <laughs> I'm gonna be honest. Well, I got great news for you. <laughs> <laughs> I hope he never works again. <laughs> I think he was great in uh, in Glass Onion. Definitely. I mean, Angela Lansbury. Oh. When they Anna showed the Anna Dachshund on the Peacock this January. <laughs> Uh, the, the movie, the Agony and the Ecstasy, is it's fine. You know, like it's it's definitely not the worst movie we've covered. It's not the best. I, I I err personally on the side of positive on it. Personally, if you're interested in art history and if you're interested in the relationship between uh, faith and art, I think that is worth at least skipping through. Yes, and watching the first ten minutes. Yes, it's beautiful architecture. Beautiful, be- wonderful marble. Beautiful marble. Except for that very wobbly dro- or uh, helicopter shot that opens it. Well, I was impressed by it, too. I was like, dang, are they going to fly it into the chapel? <laughs> if, I was convinced the pilot was drunk, so maybe. <laughs> Watch out! Ooh. I don't, really sh- I don't know if we should be talking about helicopter crashes. <laughs> That's what I was thinking of. like... <laughs> Uh, check out our Blackboard Jungle episode for more information on that experience. All right, Sarah, what was the agony? I just think it's. What are we? Are we done? I thought we were done. I was just saying. I think it's funny that they had such bad helicopter shot beginning <laughs> their movie. Same year, Sound of Music came out. That's true. <laughs> That's true. the comparison is very obvious. Which is better? All right, 
Sarah, what was this nominated for? Uh, best art direction, color. Best cinematography, color. Best costume design, color. Best original score and best sound. All right. So here's the dealio. As I said, I think all three of those first options are great. Um, but I also want to give a shout out to one I'm not picking, but I think the score in this, fantastic. Really great score. Always sticks out in a positive sense. That said, they recreated the Sistine Chapel and it looks really great. Moreover than that, I think the 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 walls look great. I mean, not the walls of the chapel. I think like the basic set design of this show this movie is very beautiful at points. And also I think the scaffolding's impressive too. I think it, it really it's a really great like grand art direction. And so I feel like it's got to be art direction. The sets are great. Yeah, they rebuilt the Sistine Chapel. Like, what else am I supposed to pick? I, I will also say I like the motif of your scene, uh, St. Peter's being built. It, it shows the passage of time as the same establishing shot, but they show it changing. And that's, that's super cool, too. I think that was a good device. So, obviously, art direction. Well, first of all, we went out of order. Second of all... <laughs> oh, you're absolutely right. Oh, I'm no. So sorry, Caleb's got to be in the middle this time. Uh-oh. 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 Um, I feel like even though I didn't really like this movie, I feel like all of these are good choices. I besides sound, I think that old movies do not know how to record sound. <laughs> there was um, one scene in this where he's talking to his girlfriend, and it sounds so like they're underwater. I know. I, I thought it was my. I thought it was my movie, but it, it sounds like she's on the phone. Um, well, he did too. They both sounded like it. It was like, what's what they do here? Yeah, <laughs> I don't know about that one. Um. I'll give it cinematography because I, 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 again, I could give it to any of them, but I'll say cinematography. Um, good, good shots at the beginning, good shots overall. All right. So you got to add a nom. Um, I will give it best editing. Thought the editing was good. A lot of montages, a lot of time lapse style shots. Um, and I think. You're right. I think the movie didn't really overstay its welcome, which is good. Um, I liked Rex Harrison a lot. I think that um, this is a movie that is kind of leaning on its technical uh, technical merits, but all those got nominated. So I'm going to have to kind of go acting here. And I could also give it to Charlton Heston, but Rex Harrison was in more scenes I liked. Charlton Heston was in a lot of the scenes I didn't. So I'll give it to Rex Harrison. See, this is so tough to me. It was like, you know, those those options we had were really good. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go crazy here because I, I, I think Heston and Harrison are fine. I know. I think they're fine. I don't. To, to tell me that I'd be like, one of these is better than the other. You got to pick one for a nom. I'm like, well, no, I'm, I'm just going to not give them a nom. Um, even though the editing is good, it never there are points, you know, where it lost me. So I think I'm going to go with adapted screenplay because even though i haven't read the the thing i do think this is one of those ideal there's not really much of a narrative arc here but like how do we make this compelling so i think i'll go with adapted screenplay it feels like this was probably a tough novel to adapt and i think they did a pretty good job making a script that was entertaining and insightful and short so yeah sure all right. Do you guys want to know what we're doing next time? Yeah. Absolutely. So, 
as I said, the 30th Academy Awards, there was another film with five nominations and no wins. It's a film that on Letterboxd is credited with three directors, but I'll tell you this, I have the DVD out from the library. It only lists George Stevens on the DVD, so I'm curious about this. Much like how, sorry, side note before I announce, did you guys notice that on the, and maybe no one else looks at the wiki pages than I, but the wiki page, it keeps referring to the composers as Alex North, who's credited, and Jerry Goldsmith, who I can, like, is not credited on the film, and I feel like this way predates Gary. Um, I wonder if Jerry he just, if he just did, like, I, I did see that. I was wondering if he just did, like, arrangements of pre-existing music or something. I'm going to quickly Google it, but I will say that Agony and Ecstasy does not show up, like, as an autofill with Jerry Goldsmith. Uh, well, if you look at the annotation on the Wikipedia page, it will take you to a site called Film Tracks, Modern Soundtrack Reviews, and it looks like it was made in 2002. So I will say this. I do see that Amazon credits him as a composer on it, too, though. So maybe the one thing I've seen is that the prologue is attributed to him. So maybe he only did that music in the first sequence. But I don't know. I don't know. I do think it's interesting to see his name because I don't think of him as a 60s composer. I think of him a bit later on. Although, did he do Bond? I forget. That's someone else, right? No, no one else. It's okay. He did. I mean, I'm I'm yeah, he is Star Trek. That was later. I am not seeing Bond on his credits. Ah. Does say he worked with Howard Hawks and Preminger? Wow, that's crazy. He did Um, the Twilight Zone. Was oh early. He did the Expendables. And the man from Uncle. And he did Soren at Disney World. It's a good score. What can I say? He also did an upcoming Snow Club film that we'll talk about soon. But not this one. Sorry. I, yeah. I'll go back to announcing yes. what the uh, we're, we're in suspense. All right. So next week we'll be talking about uh drum roll, please. George Stevens. The greatest story ever told so it better live up to that title because if it's not the greatest story ever told i'm going to get my mind out i will say this also about it it is the second longest snub club movie we'll ever cover unless um the new scorsese movie qualifies next year but we'll see we'll see i'm just happy sydney poitier is coming back is sydney in this yeah what I do see Angela Lansbury. It's, dang, we're doing, we're doing Angela I'm, and Sondheim back to back. Because Steven Sondheim was in this movie. <laughs> he was in the title. Pat Boone's in this movie? What? Oh my word. What? <laughs> Pat Boone is in this There's movie. A, this cast is really big. I'm very, I'm, I'm about to right now, like, keep right, like, moving my mouse. <laughs> oh my God, who plays Herod? Oh, wow. The, you could say... Just Max like the said, though. Just like I'm the sorry, post. Just... I want to see my joke. Say your joke. Just like the post is a prequel to all the presidents men. The greatest story ever told is a prequel to the agony and the ecstasy. It's true. I yep. also want to shout out someone who I see will be our, our returning person, which I think is just good casting. Is that the person who played the mom in Friendly Persuasion plays Mary in this? Just a funny connection to me. She seems a little old. To, well, maybe she plays older Mary. Maybe the movie starts later in Jesus' life. Is it? Is it his entire life? I guess we'll find out. 
I don't know. Oh, it's about no. Jesus. I see the language. first the first words, three wise men. Oh no. <laughs> I mean it is Oh that's it is three hours and twenty minutes long. So that's probably who Sidney Poitier is playing. No, he's uh, not. I I I've looked at a couple of these now because I have my Ed Wynn is in this movie. And John Wayne. Did you say John Wayne was in this? Uh, I'm not sure if I said it, but I have seen this movie Robert before, which Roja. took me a long time. Claude Rains is in it. Yeah. Jamie Farr is in it. Heck yeah. One All of right. my favorite performers will be returning to, but I'll keep that one secret for you guys later. All right. I'm Danny Vincent. You can follow me on Letterboxd at Blankments. You can also listen to my other podcast, Looking for the Ocean, a Pixar Journey, where we talk about everything Pixar has ever made. Toy Story 3. Well, we'll be talking about it if we haven't talked about it yet. Check it out. Hi, I am Caleb from Caleb from the Real World. You can find me on Instagram and YouTube. From there, you can find my litany of other podcasts, Hot Trash Unlimited, All New 52, and The Snub Club. Wait, nope, that's what I'm doing. And Star Wars Welcome. Therapy. <laughs> and uh, special thanks to our editor, Joe. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, we Joe. Love you. Hope you don't mind the succession spoilers I dropped in this recording. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think I dropped those before we recorded anyway. Sorry, go on. Uh, you can find me on Letterboxd. is my name, Sarah Kanoff. You can find me on Instagram, uh, SGK29ESSGEKY29. Uh, you can find us, the Snub Club, on Facebook, the Snub Club, uh, Twitter, Snub Club Pod, and Instagram, Snub Club Podcast. All right. I don't want to hype it up too much, but we will see you next time for the greatest story ever told. You know what? I'm just going to say, I'm getting kind of tired of this guy.